Hi, my name is Kibali. Welcome to the Ari Diaries podcast. Our guest today is Omar Elmawi and I will let you introduce yourself. Thank you Kibali for having me in the studio today. Um ladies and gentlemen, my name is Omar Elmawi. I work for the Decolonize campaign uh, where my purpose is to coordinate the campaign. Um the work that we're doing is just to ensure that we push for a green and sustainable energy future for Kenya and definitely uh, speaking up against fossil fuels and more specifically around coal and other fossil fuel energy projects. Okay, that's an interesting introduction. Um let's start with your background. Where were you born? Tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah. Thank you. Um so I was born uh, in the coastal province, the coastal region, uh, specifically a place called Kwale. Uh, so that's where my dad fell in love with my mom and they decided to sire me um since then uh i i come from lamu as well that's where my father comes my paternal side and my maternal side is in the eastern part uh, of kenya uh my bra- background is also um mostly within the coastal region uh, all uh, levels of school so from nursery to primary school to high school all of them have been in the coastal region as well as the university by the way now that I'm thinking of it <laughs> um I only came to Nairobi nilikuwa mshamba that time coming to Nairobi for the first time in 2016 uh, where I did uh, the Kenya School of Law to be admitted as an advocate of the high court mm. um so as you can guess now my background is law um and uh, it's what I do uh, with every working day just to ensure that I push Uh, for community rights and the people that I hold dear to ensure that in any development projects that are coming to their backyard uh, are done in a way that are participatory and also involve them uh, from uh, the initiation all the way to the implementation phase. Okay. Um so taking you back you were born in Kwale, your dad is from Lamu, your mom is from the eastern part of Kenya and then you were also raised in Mombasa. Yes, yes that's correct. So what would you Where did you go to primary school? Yeah, so there is a place or a school called uh, Kaloleni Primary School. Mm-hmm. Um not many people know it, but I think it's one of the very few schools uh that are one school are in two bu- two schools are in one building. So we have uh, Kaloleni Kikoani uh on that area and then we have a ladies uh for the girls which is uh, Bondeni Mbeheni. I've not seen any other school. Other school that's like in that. In the country yeah. that's like that, yeah. Yeah the the coast the coast region is interesting like that and then where did you go to high school yeah so high school um i went to hamis high school mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, just i know most people who are listening will know Changamo of uh, area. polytechnic yeah. the um, uh, technical university of mombasa currently as it's called mm. so hamis high school is directly opposite uh technical university of mombasa mm-hmm. and it's where i went uh, for high school from form 1 all the way to form 4 Oh wait, Hamis Hamis High School is in that's Chuda, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Chuda region. And then the primary school is in the Changamo area. No, no the primary school is uh, near it's close proximity to Coast General Hospital. Mm. So it's just a walking distance from Coast General Hospital. Okay. I need to remember my background well. Okay. Uh-huh. And then university which is where we became friends. Mm. Where did you go to university? Uh so I was uh, fortunate to go to the University of Mombasa or oh, yes, Nairobi. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the University of Nairobi but Mombasa campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, from year 1 all the way to 4th year. 
Um, and uh, I remember when we started, we were like the pioneers of the school uh, of law. They before had a uh, school of business, uh, but then they decided to add another school. Mm. And we started having law and we were one of the very, uh, the first people to do that course. In yeah. 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 And then I think our class was the first one to do public relations at, yeah. at that university in Mombasa. That's very interesting. Okay. And then you came to Nairobi. Yes, yes, to and do then Ke- Kenya School of Law. I found myself in Nairobi. Yes, mm-hmm. um, so in Nairobi was partly uh, for education because I needed to do my diploma, my postgraduate diploma, uh, to be able to be admitted as an advocate of the High Court. They call it the Advocate Trainings Program yeah. uh, here at Kenya School of Law in Karen. Uh, but then I was also here uh, doing some work as well uh, because for a long time I was based in Lamu, um, and we were in many ways trying to push uh, for community participation in most or all of the development projects that are coming to Lamu. Mm -hmm. Um, So strategically, we realized that just dealing with the issues only from Lamu, uh, when everything is happening in Nairobi, uh, then we were losing out on the conversation. So we uh, strategically decided to have someone here in Lamu, which is now here in Nairobi, which is me, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to have this conversation with some of the uh, offices and the other stakeholders that we wanted to engage with. Okay, okay. And when you were, uh, so you, so after you finished university, would you say that's when you started working on the, on the LAMU project? Yeah, so I finished the university in 2013, actually. No. Um, that's when I graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, for the year that followed 2014, no. uh, most of it was uh, tamaking and trying to figure out where, uh, which direction, which direction to direction, take, yeah, yeah. what to do. Um, so I did do some work uh, with uh, a bit with the county government, but on a contractual basis. Um, I also did uh, a bit of some work with uh, a few law firms here and there, but then I also realized it's not my thing. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go to Lamu uh, in 2015, mm. uh, early 2015, uh, where... I now worked with an organization called Save Lamu no. uh, between that year until 2018, when now I moved or started working specifically with the decolonized campaign. Okay, okay. Um, and after you, so after that, and then you were also in Kenya School of Law. Would, did did working with Save Lamu sort of um, shift your mind on what 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 you want to do with your law with your law degree? Would you say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, for me to speak about my career progression, I think it's also important just to give a background about the communities that I come from. So um, to start with the Lamu, uh, it's a community that has been marginalized since independence. Mm. I mean, until just a few years back, they did not have a single kilometer of tarmac road uh, within the county. So these are people who have been marginalized. They've not seen development. Um, they don't get the best education. Um, and therefore, you could count by your hand how many people have actually Going been able to, to go to college yeah. or to university. Um, and, and in many ways, uh, when I was back in Lamu and working with Sev Lamu, it made me realize that um, while definitely everyone has the right to try and progress and improve themselves, uh, but I also think that uh, as the, the society and the community you come from plays a part. Uh, in the person that everyone is, and therefore at least a percentage of your time or your efforts uh, should be uh, in many ways 
uh, invested in trying to improve them and their way of living. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why I was in Lamu and I worked with Lamu. And I've always not really been involved with anything that doesn't necessarily uh, touch on improving the community. Okay. Okay. And then you, so let's get into the Save Lamu, like Save Lamu and some of the the work that it does before we go into decolonize. What is Save Lamu or what what is it about? Yes, yeah, so Save, Save Lamu is uh, this amazing community-based organization um, that works to really push uh, for for the community that they represent uh, in the whole of Lamu yeah. to be involved in development projects that are coming to Lamu. So what happened then before it was initiated? So we started having the Kibaki government um, 2002, 2003, uh, starting to think around the Vision 2030 project. So with the Vision 2030 project, it brought about so many other development projects. Among them is a project called LAPSET, Lamu Port, South Sudan, Ethiopian Transport Corridor. Mm. Um, so with LAPSET, one of the components of LAPSET was going to be a port in Lamu. Uh, and the way that it was uh, uh, in, in many ways thought or envisioned was that it's going to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, ports in Africa. So it's a port that was going to have about 32 baths. Uh, I think only the port of Durban was going to uh, be a challenge to it um, and uh, many, many other projects. So the people of Lamu won. They were definitely happy that uh, finally development, development projects are coming yeah. to us. But they were also concerned uh, because one, the people of Lamu, about 75% of the population depend on fishing as a way, as a, as a livelihood, either directly or indirectly. Um, and, and for the port to be constructed, it would have meant dredging on the sea where it's the fishing sites uh, for all these fishermen. It would, it would also mean an influx of people coming to Lamu. And these are people in Lamu are not as educated and therefore they cannot even uh, compete in these uh, employment opportunities, so they started raising these issues, yeah. uh, and they, also the culture would be the culture would be affected. Yeah, yeah. No, you actually it, it reminds me because Lamu one of the reasons uh, why it's celebrated is that it's a UNESCO World Heritage mm. Site, so it's renowned worldwide because of its culture and its way of life yeah. and how they do their things. So yeah. that was also going to be challenged, um, and and therefore in many ways um, when they did the cost benefit analysis, they realized that we will have this magnificent project here, but our people are going to be suffering. So mm. they wanted to be involved in the progression of that project and also to be able, the project to be done in a way that doesn't necessarily impact their way of living. So that's what Sevlamu does. It, it's, it's a platform or an umbrella organization that brings different uh, parts of the community uh, to raise issues around development projects and to make sure that the community is involved so that it's free prior and informed consent uh, is reached uh, ultimately. Okay. And then you, so you were with them for, are you, you're not, you're not working with Save Lamu anymore, right? I am working with them, not yeah. for them not anymore. Not for them yeah, anymore, yeah, sorry. I, I am working with them. Yeah. Uh, a big part of the work that I'm doing now is uh, involving the community that is in Lamu and Kitui where the mining is being planned. Okay. Um, Which so, is now how you got involved with the decolonize the decolonize. Okay, before we get to the decolonize um, campaign, tell us a few things about Lamu that people would not know because people think of Lamu as this one big 
you know, like almost mystical place where you only go for holiday. Mm. In fact, a lot of Kenyans only think of Lamu from a holiday perspective. They don't know about the people. They don't know about the language. They do, the languages, mm. you know, they don't know about um, the intricate history mm. of Lamu. I think the only time I would say that there was, apart from the festival, um, there was a time when some coins were found in one of the islands mm-hmm. and then they were traced, I think, due to the 13th century Chinese um, sailors who came to the coast. So please speak up a little bit about Lamu, like some of the unique things of Lamu that people would not know. Yes, definitely. Um, so Lamu itself, one thing that people really get wrong is when you say Lamu, everyone thinks of the island, the Lamu island. So Lamu is an archipelago island. So it's a county that has several other islands, including the Lamu island that everyone wants to go to, Mm. and a mainland. Um, And it's home to, uh, and it's one of the best preserved or oldest preserved Swahili settlement uh, in East Africa. I think it's it's, it's even older than Zanzibar uh, from Tanzania. Um, It's uh, definitely renowned for many things. Among them, it's its culture. Um, the culture here, I mean, you know, the way of life, the language, but also some of the things that they do. So there are these type of hats that you won't see anywhere except in Lamu, where they use threads, um, kushona, those hats, mm. uh, uh, where you see many Muslims, uh, community of people from the Muslim background wearing them. Um, one person I'm sure you've seen wearing it is Miguna Miguna. So the hat that he normally wears, that type of embroidery, uh, comes from Lamu. Um, it's it's also uh, renowned in terms of uh, because it's been there for a while. Uh, so there is a lot of borrowing from other uh, regions or cultures, if I would mention. Um, so there is a lot of uh, Arabic kind of influence you will see when you're in Lamu in terms of uh, how they're doing um, the carving of some of their wooden um Doors and Doors, furniture, yeah, yeah. chairs, furniture, everything. Uh, but also uh, the houses uh, that you'll see, the buildings. Uh, some of them have been there for quite a while. Um, so also the the fact that it's a fishing, mostly a fishing community, uh, because they depend uh, a big deal on fishing. But also it's a very very big uh, tourist attraction yeah. uh, in in terms of people to see the culture, to see the people, uh, to see the food. Some of the amazing food. Uh, you'll only taste in Lamu, mm-hmm. um, and to also to also just go and enjoy uh, the sea as well. So you could you could go uh, fishing, you could go snorkeling, and different other activities. Um, and and for me, uh, increasingly now because I find myself a lot in Nairobi, it's one of the places that I go to if I want to like distress, you know, get grounded, uh, and and in many many ways recharge and come back re-energized. So yeah, sweet. yeah. Um, what about the language? Like people know that every every time people go to Lamu, they don't know that that's also one of the Kiswahili dialects. And it's not just one. People just hear one, but there's several that are spoken on the islands. Please speak about that. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and that's a good question because many people, for them, when they hear Kiswahili, they only think of what they're taught in school. Which is uh, not even not even yeah. a Kenyan dialect. It's actually from Zanzibar. Exactly. Kyukuja, yeah. exactly. And, and I'm seeing a movement now of Many, many people trying to uh, own and get back their language back uh, because at least uh, within within Kenya, Kiswahili or the Swahilis are not recognized as one of the uh, tribes or people within the country. So we have a language, but it doesn't have its people. Yeah. Um, it's universally owned. Uh, but there are many dialects of Kiswahili. Uh, so even if you talk about Lamu itself, 
so you have the dialect that's being spoken majorly within the Lamu Island itself, yeah. um, which they call the uh, Amu Swahili. Um, and it's it's a little bit different than the one we're used to, but it's not as... I think you, if you know Swahili, you can, you can be able to communicate and understand yeah. what's happening. Uh, but also there are, there's the Swahili that's being spoken in uh, in, in uh, another island called the Pate Island. Uh, so that Swahili, people normally, they call those people from that side as the Bajuni. Mm-hmm. Um, they speak uh, a different dialect of Swahili, um, but definitely uh, you might find yourself lost if you're speaking to them. But I think because they've been exposed to the world, so they have other ways of communicating and ensure that they are understood. Yeah, they are understood. So we have all those different uh, versions of Swahili within Lamu. There are also others being spoken in in Mombasa and, and other areas. Uh, but I think the the bottom line is um, in, in, is that one uh, there are books that have been written around this. Uh, I would encourage people to read one, the Biocultural Community Protocol that Sev Lamu did um, in Lamu, which they talk about some of the uh, indigenous or communities that have been there for a while in the language that they speak uh, and also their livelihoods. Uh, but also there are other scholars that have written uh, things around Kiswahili mm. and trying to connect because also Swahili borrowed quite uh, a lot uh, from the Portuguese uh, as well as from uh, from from the Arabic language. Yeah, I think one of the prof- um, I think the late Professor Mazrui also wrote extensively on that. Okay, so let's speak about the decolonize the decolonize campaign. What is that about? So for for decolonize. Um, I'm thinking of where to start. So where I will start is uh, so that people see how it's progressed to the campaign Mm -hmm. is uh, the government uh, had a plan in 2013. Uh, Maybe I'll go back a few years back. So in in the 2000s, in the year 2000s, we discovered coal in Kitui, the Mui Basin. Um, So a 500 square kilometer area uh, of uh, that was holding up to, uh, I think the, uh, the figures that were mentioned at that time was around one, trillion tons of coal uh, which they wanted to exploit within within the area. So 500 square kilometers is almost the size of Nairobi County. So Nairobi County is like 600 square kilometers. Mm. Um, and, and the government now came with this uh, brilliant idea. I'm saying brilliant in quotes because these listeners won't, won't, won't see me as I speak. <laughs> so they came up with this brilliant idea to utilize coal as a source of energy, uh, specifically to generate electricity in, in the country. Uh, so they came up with what they call the Energy Master Plan in 2013. And it was on that master plan that they now propose to have the first coal plant in Lamu. Um, so back then I was in Lamu. No. Um, and this was going to be the first coal plant in East Central Africa. Uh, so we did not have any information yeah. uh, in terms of what are the benefits, what are the issues. What are the effects yeah. on the land and the community. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and as you will guess, uh, it depends on who you're talking to. So if it's the proponent, if it's the government, they will tell you how uh, it's one of the, they will use the state of the art technology, how it's going to be different from other communities that I've seen who are suffering from these projects and how the community is going to benefit by getting cheap electricity. Um, and, and therefore, we realized that we really had to do our homework and our research so that we can know uh, what we really want to do with the project. So after looking at some of the, of the, of the uh, project reports uh, from the proponents themselves, uh, after looking at some of the communities that we reached out to, so we reached out to some of the communities in South Africa, in India, who have coal plants in close proximity to where they live, 
and actually organized uh, community exchange trips for people to really see with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And we realized that, one, this is an outdated technology. This is uh, a project that's overtaken by events, and there are far, far better ways of doing this project without all the negative impacts that we talk about. Um, so uh, in a nutshell, that's how the community in Lamu now started uh, the opposition for the Lamu coal plant. Uh, and they progressed for a while as Save Lamu, but then they also realized that uh, dealing with this issue only as a community in Lamu would not be strategic for them. They had to find a way of escalating the, yeah, uh, it into yeah. a national issue, national campaign, where uh, they can get as many people as possible speaking up against the issues. So that's how they now thought of starting the decolonized campaign. Um, and they brought together the community in Kitui, all over the country, who want to oppose this project uh, together. And they formed the campaign. And then I just found myself coordinating the campaign. Okay. So the campaign itself, in a nutshell, it's really pushing for just green energy mm. transition for the country. Um, and by green energy, I mean wind, solar, uh, geothermal, and other renewable energy options. Uh, but definitely in pushing them, we are also ensuring that um, the way that they're being done, yeah. they're respectful of community rights, land rights, and stuff like that. Because we've seen uh, people coming in the name of renewable energy, but also... Um, you know, disrespecting rights, displacing people without doing it as the way the law uh, requires them yeah, to do. Yeah. And what would you say has been the effect of the decolonized campaign for people who might not be aware of it? Uh, one of uh, the biggest effects that I like using is since we've started this, we're yet to have a coal industry in Kenya. Mm. So we're yet to have a coal plant in Lamu. We're yet to mine even a single ton of coal in Kitui. So that's been one of the biggest uh, benefits because what I've seen from my experiences uh, all through the world in terms of communities that are looking at coal plants, uh, these are very expensive projects. So the thing is, the only chance you have of stopping them is before they happen. So once uh, something has been done, yeah. and the government has asked for loans uh, and the proponents have started construction, there's really nothing much you can do uh, in terms of doing this. Um, and, and the second effect that I've seen is <clears throat> since we started, uh, I think around 2014, 2015, um, our electricity generating capacity was largely from thermal and fossil fuels. Uh, but we've been able to stop some of these thermal projects and fossil fuel projects. And now uh, we proudly, whenever our president and our, some of our other leaders are speaking to international leaders, uh, say how we are now 90% plus uh, renewable energy okay. uh, being the source of electricity within the country. Uh, so I'm saying we are getting to the 100% yeah. just energy transition that we are talking about. Um, and and, and, and I'm, I'm also thinking that we've been able to also uh, speak to many, many people, not just in Lamu and Kitui, but also in Nairobi. We've had some of the amazing conversations around call uh, at Lyon's franchise and mm. other uh, public places here in Kenya. Um, and, and the contributions, the involvement of people uh, in many, many ways now we're seeing even movements trying to push for prices around electricity, uh, people asking questions, why are we generating more electricity when we have an overcapacity and all these things. So people ha- are engaging more uh, and we're making an energy more of uh, a popular kind of discussion and yeah. everyone wants to be involved in the dis- in the discourse. Yeah. What, based on the working with Sivlamu and the decolonized campaign, what lessons would you share with 
people and communities that are still agitating for for change because there's a lot of systemic issues that are still you know that are still present in this country and there's so many communities that are still marginalized and they don't know how to go about agitating for change and getting for maybe the country to rally around those causes what are what are some of the lessons that you would be able to share yeah so and and this is important because like a campaign or movement like any other movement i've seen many that have started really on a high and then within a month or two uh, either they lose traction or people move on to other things no. so one thing that i've seen work on my end um is really not lose touch of why you're doing the movement or the campaign uh, because once you escalate uh, from the community to a national background some people might lose touch with the community you know they are mm-hmm. the ones who have the direct lines with the with the with the funders and they have the big money now and they can ha- do big big meetings in Nairobi and, and also hotels. set the agenda yes, yeah. yes exactly so one thing that has really grounded me is uh, ensuring that the community is the center of the campaign um so if you look at the decolonized campaign itself whenever we do any activity uh, that is engaging the media for instance we're doing a protest uh, demonstration um a press briefing and stuff like that rarely would you see me speaking to the media no. we would have a representative from the community although i come from there but i make sure that it's someone from the community that is speaking about these issues so making sure that that whatever you're doing is community centered because they're the ones who know best they're the experts anyway. yeah um, the fact that some of them have not gone to school does not mean that they do not know what they're doing yeah um as much as we have uh, we call them illiterate but i think we also have educated fools you know people who've mm. gone to school uh but they they don't really we don't see what the education has done to them so that's important i also think the importance of having a multi stakeholder approach um for for many of the cso's community uh civil society organizations that is uh we normally think of other stakeholders for instance here like government project proponents that are bringing these projects as adver- as adversarial and therefore we cannot have any meaningful engagements or communication with them and i like i am raising this issue because i've been recently reading uh, irungu hutton's uh, book, book yeah. on um, on dialogue and dissent um just for people to know that these are important people um and the fact that we only communicate with other csos it's more of we are preaching to the choir so these are people who have already converted uh, to our dialogue Uh, and if we don't engage the other important people then mm. our message is not getting out there so try as much as possible uh, to have this conversation with some of the stakeholders like government uh, our political leaders some of the project proponents to really make them see and understand uh, your point of view um and and make an economics case that if they were to do what you're proposing to them then they will they actually stand to make more money with yeah. less uh, community opposition so that's definitely important and finally um in definitely as important um is the fact that uh, to engage even within the community to engage all the different aspects of the community uh we've seen um especially women uh in in people of the other gender being 
really, really affected by these projects, but their issues, their concerns are not necessarily uh, being taken into consideration. So you will see like a project proponents comes to Lamu, they meet only with men uh, because uh, traditionally men are the owners of the land, they're the ones who make decisions. Uh, but at the end of the day, if some of these projects are implemented, it's the women that are going who to be affected the most. The most yeah. yeah, because they're the ones who go out to fetch firewood, they're the ones who go out to fetch water, and they're the ones who take care of us when we are sick. Um, so if we do not engage them as an important stakeholder, then we'll be losing them out and we will continue having these uh, issues with uh, the inequalities uh, within the different genders. So those are some of the aspects I would mention. But finally, and this is very important as well, um, is the fact that, you know, op being opposed to something doesn't really mean anything. You have to have your facts. You have, have to have done your research. But don't stop there because uh, anyone that you talk to will want to hear what you're talking about mm -hmm. if you mention both the problem and then you propose some of the solutions that you have. Uh, so also, uh, if you don't agree to a certain a way that a project is being done, um, suggest your own alternative. Yeah. You know, how can it be done in a way that will make sense to you? And if it were done that way, then the community will be on board. Okay. Um, another question I was thinking about as you're talking is, how do you think more young people can start to be engaged in such issues? Well, yeah, because there is, people think of the younger generation as people who don't care about about the world they don't care about what's happening but they care maybe differently from how other people have been taught to care for issues so how how in your own in your own way how would you how would you suggest that young people start to get involved in some of these issues it's like you've been reading my thoughts so i've also done my own internal self audit mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and i realized we do not engage the young people as much as we should um, and this comes from the background and knowing that, one, uh, the young people are not just the leaders of tomorrow, but also of today. So they're the ones who are the majority in Kenya. I think 70% of the population in Kenya are the youth. Um, and, and also the fact that they're not involved in decision making. Um, so what I'm seeing now and what I'm trying to do in my own personal capacity is to engage this important group in this discussion. So be it on energy issues, be it on climate change, be it on electricity and stuff like that, to make sure that we know uh, what they want and how they want things to be done. Um, and as you had said, uh, it's not just engaging them, but how are we engaging mm. them? Uh, because uh, while we've been used for a long time to have you know meetings and workshops and stuff like that, but most of the youth maybe will need to be engaged in social media uh, using activism, you know, art in a way to express different issues that you want to be had, yeah. bringing them on board as part of these initiatives and stuff like that. Um, so we are actually trying to organize and do a breakfast meeting with some of the key youth voices that we know yeah. to really hear from them because I'm almost getting out of the youth bracket and just me sitting and deciding how to do things for them might not make sense for them. So yeah. we're trying to bring them all together as stakeholders and really hear from them how they want this done. Um, because uh, we've seen, especially in the Western countries, the youths becoming key voices around climate change issues and governments even having to come up with policies and plans in terms of when they're going to cut 
their emissions uh, to be in accordance with the Paris Agreement. So that's something that we are really, really involving with them. But what I would like to say um, in, in finality on this issue is the fact that the youth should realize that they are the majority of the country uh, and therefore being engaged uh, in these discussions uh, is not a matter of courtesy. It's a matter of their right. Uh, yeah. They need to be involved. Uh, they need to make these decisions. Uh, and if it's not happening, then they need to find ways of making sure that uh, their position and their their thoughts around these issues are taken as seriously as they're supposed to be. Okay. And being that you're a lawyer and you come from a legal background, how can people lobby? Because nothing changes without policies, mm. you know, and it's a thing that when Nerima was here, it's something that she talked about when Silante was here, something that she talked about as well, that nothing changes without policy. Mm. And a lot of people shy away from politics and they don't realize that politics affect how much money you pay for water, how much money you pay for electricity, if you even have roads, if you have good schools, if you have access to health, you know, how can people engage with policy? How can they lobby better, you know, being that you're from a legal background? Definitely. So one thing that everyone needs to understand is our political leaders are not really leaders, they are representatives. Mm -hmm. um, so they're there because we voted for them. They're supposed to be representing us. Um, and uh, therefore, this gives us a very good platform to make sure that they see and they know what we're standing for. Um, and at least in my experience in trying to work with them, um, it's it's really to try and make sure that you politicize the issues well enough so that they want to treat them as an electoral issue. Um, so, for instance, now you will see most of the politicians talking about unemployment, talking about development projects. Uh, but for me, I would also say, like, talk about energy as a very important key issue, uh, that uh, it's not just uh, an add-on to yeah. what they're standing for, but it becomes an intrinsic part of their manifesto. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, in 2022, we're seeing some of the political leaders uh, raising issues on the environment, raising issues on climate change and stuff like that. Because it's not hypothetical anymore, you know. We've we've seen uh, in the few years back, uh, I think in 2018, about 200 plus people were affected by floods, um, 150,000 of them being school children. We've yeah. seen schools being submerged in water and different issues, you know, while we want to be religious and we want to say we've sinned and therefore God is punishing us. Uh, but it's it's also true that how we've been depleting this planet or yeah. utilizing the resources has been very wasteful. Um, and our leaders have not, in many ways, led this discussion. So make it a political issue. Uh, call them when they're not speaking about these issues. Um, and, and, and if they do not represent us, I mean, we have the power to recall, to fire them. Uh, if they do not represent us in this issue. So we have the right. Um, we have the right to call them and tell them this is what we are talking about as uh, local wananchis in Kenya um, and definitely tell them that this is the carrot if you represent us and then this is the stick if you don't. Uh, so that in many ways they, they take their, 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 their job seriously yeah. uh, and really represent people and make sure that they come up with laws and policies that are not supporting uh, proponents and companies to exploit from the community, but come up with laws that are really protective uh, of these people that they're supposed to be representing. Okay. Um, you touched on the Paris Agreement. Mm. And for people who might not know what it's about, um, I think it was 2015 when mm -hmm. it was signed, but please, please talk a little bit about the Paris Agreement, what it's about and what Kenya 
has been doing um, in line with that? So with the, the Paris Agreement, um, they officially they call it the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. Um, and it's a law that came, um, you know, for a long time since the Industrial Revolution um, up to around the 2000s. Uh, we've been um, depleting the planet and, and utilizing the planet to, for economic benefits as countries, as individuals and as companies. And while doing that, uh, we've been emitting one of the biggest causes of global warming or climate change. Uh, is carbon yeah. emissions. Yeah. So we've been emitting a lot of carbon from a big chunk on coal, uh, either for electricity or energy utilization, um, oil and gas, yeah. uh, among other fossil fuel projects. Uh, and therefore, in many ways now, the, 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 the planet has kept, uh, you know, getting warmer and warmer with each coming year. Um, so what has happened with the war global warming uh, is that now we're seeing... Uh, more extreme weather events. So you're seeing when it's hot, it's really hot. When it's, <laughs> when it's cold. When it's cold, people are here in Nairobi, but they're thinking, well, are we now in Europe <laughs> or is it winter? Mm. You know, someone arguing or people saying that now it's more, it's it's cooler than it's, it, it used it, to be. Yeah. yeah, so we're seeing those extreme events. We're seeing droughts, extreme droughts and people dying uh, because of food insecurity and famine. Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of flooding uh, when it rains. Um, and many, many other, including the locust invasions that no. we've been seeing uh, a few a few months or year back. Yeah. Um, and, and what this means now is that, uh, and I was reading the, so governments are supposed to do uh, a document called the National Determined Contributions. So it's, in short, it's called the NDC, mm -hmm. where they say this is the amount of carbon we are going to be meeting as yes. a country. Uh, so the NDCs that I read, uh, you know, the government... Um, seems to confess that climate change is causing about 3 to 5% uh, losses from our GDP, as economic losses from our GDP. Yeah. Um, and that's about 300 to 500 billion Kenya shillings mm. uh, every year due to climate uh, impacts. Yeah. So we're talking about famines, you know, infrastructure that's being affected by these uh, floods and stuff like that. And therefore, it's, it's not something that's affecting people. It's affecting all of us. Uh, it's affecting the government in terms of what it makes every year, and 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 that's how now the gov the drift many countries unanimously agreed to come up with or to sign an agreement where they will be uh, cutting down their carbon emissions, no. uh, so that we are able to avoid getting uh, the global uh, warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So right now we are on course to more than two degrees Celsius. Yeah. Um, so in, in a bid to do that, so that we make sure that we do not have uh, a, a crisis that we cannot avert. So that's how Kenya signed to the agreement in 2015. Um, and uh, 2015, they gave uh, their first NDC, um, which committed to cut carbon emissions by 30%. And then last year, they gave uh, another NDC where they... Uh, committed to cut their carbon emissions by 32%. So okay. it's definitely an important uh, aspect uh, where governments are coming together to ensure that they come up with a plan uh, of uh, not, um, you know, putting this planet into crisis. Um, granted, uh, Kenya and most of the African region uh, are very res are responsible for quite 
uh, a small amount of the carbon as, footprint. As compared to, yes, compared yeah, to other, other countries. countries. But then also we are the most affected uh, and, and therefore we have... It's Yeah, it's so interesting how those things work. <laughs> yeah, so we were most affected. Uh, talk about Cyclone Idai and others talk about Kenya with the floods. So we, we, we have to come up as leaders around these issues. Uh, because it's only then when we show that we're taking it serious that mm. we can ask the other countries to also follow suit. Okay. Um, I think we've talked a lot about um, climate action, um, about the work that you do. Um, as we come to a close of the podcast, I wanted to ask you um, a more personal question, but it's related to the pandemic. Mm. You, you, you're a parent mm. now. And you've been raising a family during a global pandemic, which I'm sure it's not something that you ever imagined you would do. What are some of the lessons you have learned um, through that in terms of like what what are some of the lessons you've learned? I think that's really the question, being a parent during a pandemic. One thing that this pandemic has really taught me is not to take things for granted. I mean, things that we just normally did, like going out, using public means and doing stuff. Now you have to think twice before you even leave the house, um, especially if you're having someone with underlying conditions or with kids. Um, you become very um, strategic in terms of when you go out and you have family outings uh, with 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 your with, with your people. But then the other thing that has really been with me, uh, and it's something that uh, I'm not going to forget anytime soon, um, is how. Uh, some of us are blessed to still be employed. I mean, I've seen many, many people, you know, uh, today they're employed, tomorrow they're told, you know, because of COVID, because of what's happening, we have to lay you over, you have to, you know, um, uh, retrench you, or we have to put you uh, on um, permanent or uh, forceful leave and stuff like that. So it's it's affected many, many communities and many families. Uh, but for me, at least, I'm happy that I'm still able to sustain mine. Uh, but also, in 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 many many ways, uh, has uh, enabled us to. Uh, I think personally, for me, so one thing that I have seen really factoring in a lot in my work is the travel. So I used to travel a lot uh, before COVID, uh, pre-COVID, uh, but then after COVID hit, and you know we could not travel. We have to stay within the country. We actually don't want to even move out of Nairobi. Mm. It made me realize that some of the travelings that we're doing are not necessary. I mean, so nowadays I'm more, uh, I'm very key, keen in terms of the travels that I make. And if it's something that I can do without travelling, then I'm able to do, do it, that. Yeah. So in many, many ways now, it's made me to be more closer with family, connect, uh, and to be part and to see as they progress, rather than your kid seeing you only on the weekends or when you're around. It's, it's now allowed us to continue the important work that we're doing, but also not to lose out uh, on giving, having family time. Okay. Um, as we wrap up, what are some of the lessons that you have learned, being that you have Lamu as part of your heritage, you have Mombasa as part of your heritage? Um, what are some of the lessons that you have learned throughout life that you, if you look back, you can say that this was this was an important lesson. It has It has helped me to be able to you know, to to be the person that I am today? The one thing that comes to mind will definitely be the fact that because I come from different community backgrounds, 
um, it's allowed me to be um, to be more uh, open or more accommodating to other communities. So it's definitely to realize and understand that we're different, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, some of the other communities are bigger or uh, in, in many ways uh, should be should have more rights of issues. So it's made me see things around that facet, um, and it's it's allowed me to to really celebrate and and uh, and and be happy with uh, the different people that I come from, and and therefore it's now uh, rarely does someone ask me, you know, what's your ethnicity, what's your tribe. I I really have to think mm. before I tell someone, you know, me I'm this tribe or I'm this ethnicity. So I normally find myself either saying Kenyan because I don't want to explain too much. Uh, if I feel like I have time, then I will explain to them yeah. uh, why I think I come from different communities. I know most of the African communities, they say you have to go with where your dad comes from. Yeah. Uh, but I've always challenged that discussion. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll challenge you to do something that I haven't asked anyone to do before. I want you to say goodbye to people but because you speak Kiswahili, but also you speak Kibajuni, I want you to say goodbye in Kibajuni <laughs> as we finish. <laughs> well, um, some of the, there's some words that don't really change, like goodbye is always kwaheri, kwaheri and stuff like that. Um, and I'm not, It has to be a sentence. I don't want a word. Uh, definitely. So um, de- um, um, I might not represent the Bajuni people as well as I think I am. <laughs> So I'm definitely saying poleni na mapema if that happens. Lakini kwa niaba ya watu wetu kutoka amu, watu wetu kutoka ubajunini, haswa haswa zile semu za pate, wanyumwali, faza na kadhalika. Nimefurai kwa hapa leo kuzungumza na nyinyi na natumai kwamba mutapata nafasi na nyinyi pia mpate kuya kule kwetu amu ili mpate kujionea mambo kadha wa kadha ambayo mtafurahi uh, kuwa uh, mumehusika na jamii hiyo. Shukrani sana na tuzidi kwa pamoja. Hapo sasa. Hi, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Goodbye guys. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time. Bye.